From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Mississippi native Nick White has published stories in the Kenyan Review, the Hopkins Review, Indiana Review, and elsewhere. His novel, How to Survive a Summer, was published this year, and he has a collection of short stories coming out soon as well. He's an assistant professor at The Ohio State University. Welcome to Craft, Nick White. Thank you so much for having me, Doug Dangler. So How to Survive a Summer tells the story of Will Dillard, a graduate student who was sent to a camp intended to cure homosexuality in a past summer. He has recurrent painful memories of that summer, which are intensified when he learns that a horror movie based in part on the camp will be released. And that is the beginning of the novel. I'm not going to give anything away because there are mysteries yeah. in the novel. That, that's, uh, a good, that's a good tease, though. I like it. Tell me about the, your, the novel, writing the novel, how it all got started for you as an author. I started the novel about four years ago, um, and it began from just a question of what would my life had looked like had I come out or had I been outed when I was a teenager. Um, and once I went down the rabbit hole of that question, I began to realize, oh, I would have tried to, I would have thought of it as a problem. My family would have thought of it as a problem. I grew up in the church, very religious Southern Baptist uh, household in a rural part of Mississippi. Um, and we would have sought ways to quote unquote fix it, you know? And, um, once I realized that, um, I decided to write a novel, sort of like an alternative history for myself. That's how it started, but then the character of Will took off and, and has like a lot of differences from, from me, but, but it sort of started from that one, one place, and then I started exploring this notion of um, conversion therapy and ex-gay ministries, and it was really interesting because I started, like I said, the book four years ago, and when I was writing the book, I worried because four years ago it seemed like and maybe this was just me being naive and I didn't know that much about it when I first started. I mean, I had heard about conversion therapy and ex-gay ministries when I was in the church, mm-hmm. but it was always um, it was always in the corners of conversations. It was never something that the church broadcasts. And when I was growing up, I never really paid that much attention to it because I didn't think it was for me because I didn't, I was in such denial. I didn't believe I was gay. And so when I started researching it and finding out, I just, it's just sort of this constant process of being disturbed. And, (laughs) um, and, uh, and four years ago, I, I, so get back to four years ago, I was worried that readers might think that I was exaggerating or being hyperbolic about some of the violence that I depict in the novel. Um, and then now it seems like such a strange moment for the book to be coming out when stuff about conversion therapy and ex-gay ministries are just seem to be constantly on the news now. And it's, it, it's right. I didn't plan it that way, of obviously, and I didn't predict that this would be the moment that we would be at right now, and right. it's disheartening. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, like uh, the vice president, Right, uh, Mike Pence is a supporter of uh, conversion. If you therapy, read, if you read the New York Times article, which was published, I think a couple weeks after uh, Trump took the White House, it it shows kind of a history where his campaign definitely um, tacitly supported 
therapies. And if you if you go back to um, before the Republican convention, um, when uh, several representatives for the Republican Party met to um, to discuss and finalize their platform, they have wording in their platform that tacitly supports. I think the way they put it, a parent's right to uh, seek medical attention or, or therapies for their children, and that is like a, a a way and access for for these conversion therapies to still exist. When you started four years ago, and as you were nearing completion, you, I'm assuming, were doing you know research into conversion therapy and things like that. Did you feel like it was more attention was being focused on it, but the phenomenon itself? was growing or the phenomenon was shrinking uh what was your sense of that as i had a sense i had a sense that it was it was shrinking and and i don't know that i have that same sense now and i don't know if it was just my own naivete but i know for instance like the exodus project like two of the men who were sort of great supporters of the exodus project came out and said it doesn't work and um They, I think, actually, I may be getting this wrong and having the people confused, but I think they were in a relationship together and have been in a, so, so I was, I was under the impression that we had moved to a point where we were working beyond this conversation. And then last year, um, uh, the, um, uh, Gerard Conley published his beautiful memoir, Boy Erased, which talks about his experiences there. And I think that was like in the around the early 2000s, I think. Okay. And so I was, I think I knew that they still existed, but I thought as a, as a community, as a culture, we were for the most part moving forward. And I don't know that I would say that now. Okay. Um, uh, I think that was maybe perhaps my own ignorance and the fact that I had, I mean, I, I, I've lived in Nebraska and Ohio away from Mississippi for a while, but I think that may be the fact that I have not been act, as active in the evangelical church in the past seven to eight years. So it could be my own sort of like sticking my head in the ground type okay. of thing. Now, you said you didn't come out until after you were through high school or through the ages that a person would have been sent to a right. camp like this? I can't, yeah. Okay. So tell me about um, maybe your uh, your parents' reaction to this book in terms of them thinking, have they seen it? Have they read it? Yeah. They, um, they just got their copies. <laughs> um, okay. I really, really, really prolonged coming out to them. I did not come out to them until... I think two and a half years ago. Um, and that's when I got the book contract. And it was sort of like, it's now or never. And I had been presented with multi, I was out to all my friends here in Columbus and in Nebraska as well. Everyone who knew me knew I was out. I was, I've been in a relationship for four years. Um, but it was just something we didn't speak about. And, um, I remember my mom gave me some opportunities to come out to her um, one thing you should know about us is she, I would visit about twice a year. I would go home during the summer and then I would go during the Christmas holidays. 
And during the summer, when I went home, we usually like to, this may be a Southern thing, I don't know, but we would like to schedule our doctor's appointments on the same day. And then we would go to Jackson to the doctor together. And she would, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis and I am a type one diabetic. And so I would go see my endocrinologist. She would go see her rheumatologist. We would make like a day of it in Jackson and go to like, there's this catfish restaurant we like on the reservoir called the Cock of the Walk. And um, we would go there. And anyway, we, it, we, we were having like our, our day in Jackson together. And on the way back, she asked me pointedly, she's like, so do you ever date? You never talk about it. And it was a perfect opportunity, Doug, for me to tell her. And in that moment, I just completely chickened out. And my voice got about three octaves higher, if you can believe it. And I said, nope, too busy. And so, <laughs> and so, um, and so then I knew, I knew that I had to come out to them and they had to hear it from me because I was not going to be a writer that was in the closet, especially now at this moment. My work wouldn't, wouldn't allow me to do that and I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I called them uh, when I signed the contract and sent it back to the publishing company, um, publishing house, um, I went to my, because I had been in academia my whole life, pretty much, and so I was my third year in PhD at Nebraska, so I went to my graduate office, which is sort I share with two other queer people, and it's sort of tricked out in our totems of queerness, like I have my framed picture of B. Arthur and my, uh, <laughs> my collection of the history of sexuality by Foucault and uh, my, my vintage copy of Stone Butch Blues. I have like all these sort of like queer things around me. It's kind of like my protectors, what I call mm-hmm. her. Um, and so I called her and I told her and there were a lot of tears. And she, she really surprised me with love. Like she really rose to the moment because my parents, you have to understand, they're from a really small area in Mississippi called Possum Neck. And they were high school sweethearts. They married at 18. Um, they've lived pretty much in the same place for most of my life. Um, a little speck of ground in front of the big black river, um, in a little trailer. And, um, and so, it was tough for them. They're very religious, um, very conservative. And, um, but she really, really surprised me with, with, um, with how earnest and how hard she's trying to, um, to support me and love me. And then when I told her, you know, she said, well, I think we need to tell your dad. And I was too emotionally spent at the moment I, I told her, I was like, you know, I think we should wait. We should put it off. And she said, oh, no, I'm not going through this alone. And so <laughs> she said, I will call and tell him. And my dad, you have to know, he drives a truck. So he wasn't home then. Mm-hmm. So he was out on the road driving a truck. And my dad is sort of like how you would imagine the good old boy to be. Um, very Southern, masculine, chews tobacco, um, but also very sweet, very kind man. And so um, after she called and told him, he called me and he said, um, and I had been crying in my office and um, he called me and he said, um, your mother told me something today. And I said, yeah, and I, I, I know. And, and my dad said, I just want you to know my love has never been worth much in this world, but it is unconditional. And so that was like a huge, huge sort of like, 
relief right you know to have to have their support and that's not to say there hasn't been like disagreements and misunderstandings um but i think we are both because i'm an only child too we are both if we look at it as different sides we're both trying very hard to find an appropriate middle ground to stand on where we can each be ourselves and still love each other and have a relationship. And that's hard sometimes, right. but I think it's worth it because we do love each other. And I mean, I had a happy childhood with them. Um, they did the best they could for me. Um, we weren't very rich. And, um, and so I just really, really am grateful for that. And I owe them a lot. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's complicated though. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you talk about um that phone call because there are there's a scene that sort of starts off the book where um it, it's almost like like hearing you describe it makes me think, "Oh, I can see now where the the, the person is having a, a very bad reaction. Uh, Will is having a very to the movie uh, trailer. Yeah, to the movie trailer. And I'm like, wait, this uh, there are echoes here. Yeah. Like he's he's in his office, he's surrounded, and then then there's this traumatic event um, that seems like uh, yeah. you know I don't know if that's um, consciously part of it or not. Uh, I don't think consciously, but okay. I think you know there's so many unconscious things probably that pop right. up in the book that I don't I don't recognize. I do know that I was trying in that scene and peppering it out through the book how trauma works mm-hmm. how when you have when you've experienced something traumatic you have things that will set you off that you don't see coming that right. you don't expect to set you off and start swirling you down that memory that you don't yeah. want to go around i have had that with uh, people who died in my life where oh, it was the same yeah. you know sort of thing where you don't expect it and grief hits you mm. at a moment um you know, not necessarily in your your grad student office, uh, but but other places. But right. um, that's a, I'm fascinated by the idea that that was the safe place you chose, right? Yeah. The the grad student office, because in so many grad students' offices I've been in, they're they're sterile. They're they're you they're someplace you go to work and then you run away from. Um, and they remind me of I had a Carol at a, a graduate school in the library that was a prison cell. You know, it was all cement block. And this, like, you know. Well, I think it's probably more of a testament of the people who I shared an office with because I was really close to them. This was at the University of Nebraska. And what was great about the Ph.D. program there is that I was around um, more than just creative writers. I was around people who were getting Ph.D.s in literature and um, composition and rhetoric. And I was I shared an office with two, um, a gay guy and a, and a gay woman, and, um, and we just hit it off. They were both in, I think, yes, uh, Jamie, she was poetry, getting her PhD in creative writing poetry. And Robert, he was getting his PhD in, um, in critical theory queer theory and Mm -hmm. so um we would just always have these fascinating discussions in there and just you know riff on um riff on sort of our thoughts on on queering things and Mm -hmm. and it was just sort of like it just became a really uh i feel i feel like this word's overused and tired now but for for me it really felt like a safe place Mm -hmm. um just because i'd had so many wonderful sort of conversations there well i want to come back to two things that you had mentioned there sure but and but one is and and this is um, I I just want to be honest and say I find these facts a little disturbing. Okay. What I'm about to say. Okay. An MA in English. Right. A an MFA in creative writing. Yes. And a PhD in English. Yeah. That sounds like some sort of education addiction 
I think Sir, it is. You you may need to have that treated. You're not thinking about going back for an MD, a JD, or anything. You right? know, it has with the recent political climate. I have wondered if you know maybe I should study constitutional law. And um, well, I looked at that and I thought I don't know that many people. I know a couple MD PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, you you. To my knowledge, are the first person I've run into with an MFA and a PhD. You know, I think that's one of the things I share with the narrator. I think I, um, for a long time, while I was sort of like figuring myself out, I really, really wanted to live the life of the mind. And Mm -hmm. because my body, the needs of the body just did not square with how I saw myself. And it took me a long time to accept that. And I sort of retreated into academia and that sounds so foolish because like the words the the work that I was doing was forcing me to confront things about myself that I didn't want to confront I just didn't realize I was doing it at the time Mm -hmm. I mean the very nature of writing right you know creative writing trying to craft stories and figure out um what type of stories you want to tell like that's all about I think um understanding what kind of person you are in the world and I remember one of the first workshops I took here at Ohio State was um, with the writer Michelle Herman, and she told me in the first story that I had workshopped here, she said, you're writing the kind of story you think you should write instead of the kind of story you want to write. And what was so profound about that comment, and I don't know if she knew it at the time, was that not only was that the type of writing I was doing, but I was also living the kind of life I thought I should live instead of the kind of life that I wanted to live. And for me, and I think it's different for every writer, but for me and my journey as a writer, confronting issues of my being gay and coming out to myself and then coming out to other people really opened up new possibilities for my work and really sort of lit a fire under me um, in terms of helping me discover what kinds of stories I want to tell. Okay. When did you start calling yourself a writer? You would refer to yourself as a writer. Oh, probably probably since I was very young, like when I was six or seven. Okay. Like I was, yeah. Yeah, I was curious whether there was a connection between that and when you came out. No. Because you were describing like becoming a writer or becoming no. really meaning that. No, I just think I was an awful writer for a long time. <laughs> Um, I'm a writer, and, but I'm a terrible writer. Yeah, I'm a terrible like writer. And you know, you. I still don't put it past myself. I can still write. I can still write a pretty bad story. Um, and uh, <laughs> and so I don't think that's changed. It's just all about revision, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I've always been interested in story. Always been interested in writing. Before I could, before I could write, I would I would draw stories. You know, um, mm-hmm. I remember doing that. Um, and Eudora Welty has this wonderful quote where, where she says that when she was younger, I think this is in her book, One Writer's Beginning. She remembers being very disappointed when she discovered books were written by people because she thought that they just sort of like sprung up and were so magical and was kind of like let down that the hum- humans wrote books. And well, that's it's. Uh, it's seems profoundly cynical for such a young age when you're you're describing like as a child like oh no people are involved well i I, the part of that quote that i like is how how magical she kind of found books and i think i i still find that too it's sort of amazing some of the books i've read that they were written by a human that a human mind had had 
written that book because it just seems just so perfect to me. What books do you have in mind when you, you say that? What books do you look at and say, this is so perfect um, that I'm surprised a human could have written it? You know, it changes right now. I'm thinking about, um, just because I'd been talking about the book with friends, um, the book uh, The Transit of Venus by Shirley Hazard. Have you ever read that book? Mm-hmm. It takes place in Australia, but it has, um, for my money, one of the best endings in the novel ever. Um, just will gut punch you. Um, it's about two sisters growing up in Australia, but just a, just a beautiful book line by line. Any story, any story written by Alice Monroe. I mean, I know this, this sounds sort of cliche, I suppose, but everybody loves Alice Monroe, but it just seems so, so magical. The, the, the prose and the story itself, like it just, it, it just seems great. And I just read, um, I just read, uh, my name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. Um, she's sort of better known for her book Olive Kitteridge, which was made into an HBO miniseries. But this book—it's a very slender book, um, almost a novella. It just, to me, just seems so, so perfect. It was almost like when reading it, like entering into a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I still have that experience when I, when I read books. Um, just sort of marveling at the craftsmanship of them. I had that experience with the hundred years of solitude. Oh yeah, I remember at the end of it feeling just like it was, it was completely reasonable for somebody to be hanging laundry and just float off into the sky because they were such a good person. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately I'm not that good a person, so I can go out and do my laundry anytime. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I'm standing next to the dryer hoping I don't float off. <laughs> next is it. So I have uh, been been told a rumor that you are uh, a pop culture. This is true. Expert. Well, expert maybe not, but I do have my certain things that I can I can I can okay. chew the fat about. All right. So my my question following up on that is, you know, what uh, when you're writing a story and you're writing it's it's uh, any sto- any of your stories, not just the novel, but when do you have those times when you're like, oh, there's this great pop culture nugget I could drop here. Should I drop it? Should I not drop it? Do I? Um, how do you deal with having, you know, the knowledge like that to come through in your stories, but you don't want them to be too obscure for people, for example? I think it probably comes in most, or when I'm thinking about it most, not in objects or movies or television, but probably more so music. Mm-hmm. Like what music, especially I think music plays a huge role in the novel. Um, I was recently asked by a website uh, called Large Hearted Boy. I don't know if you know this website mm-hmm. or not. They ask they ask authors to write playlists for their novels, okay. and um, and so I really got to think about the kind of music that um, that I liked or that I listened to while I was writing this book. How um, many versions of the list did you go through before the final one? How many times did you? Well, is there a limited? I did. Th- I did ten songs because I was thinking one song per chapter. Um, but originally I had about 20 kicking mm-hmm. around. Um, gospel and country music play a huge role in the book, um, as does Tina Turner. <laughs> um, uh, and so, but instead I didn't use, I didn't use any gospel songs per se, but I did use the song um, When the Master Calls the Roll by uh, Roseanne Cash. Um, it's in, I think it's the last album, she, her latest album, which was put out maybe two or three years ago, called The River and the Thread. Um, it's, for my money, one of the best country music albums put out in the past 20 years. And um, it's, just a, it's just a ballad, and it, it's about these, this couple 
that are falling in love and they just happen to be falling in love during the civil war and um and just her i think she's such a such a wonderful vocal stylist that she um she's able to interpret the lyrics in the same way that like your tammy Wynette's can where there's like that cry in her voice mm-hmm. you know and um i really relate to that and anyway the the the, the song um the song, I think, on a craft level is just sort of perfect um, and mournful. And that sort of um, certain aspects of the novel um, tone-wise fit that. Um, Do you listen to music while you write? Is that something you... I listen to music probably after I write. Okay. Um, sort of like after I've written for about two to three hours, I want to take a break and listen to some music, go for a walk, maybe work out, try to run. Um, and so I'll do it then. But... But like so, so country music like I do like to include some of that in in my fiction when it's appropriate. Okay. Uh, I was hoping that um, you know because I listen to music while doing a lot of things that there was uh, a magical way that you could put on a song mm-hmm. and start writing. I have written not creatively but like critical stuff. I've written critical stuff to classic music like Rachmaninoff. Mm-hmm. That usually is great or put jazz on something that's just music and not words um i find that helps okay so the final question is you work at the house state university as a professor and so you see a lot of students what's some of the most common advice you give to them what are some of the things that you say that um you see then that they've grown after you've said that like michelle herman said to you you're writing what you think you should and not what you want or to paraphrase i think you know, writing, I think the thing that I've learned most about writing and also like teaching writing is that when you give a rule about something, there's usually two seconds later someone who comes along and breaks the rule and, and proves that rule to be wrong. Yeah. And so I'm I'm not so hard and fast about rules, but advice, the, the biggest one is investment. And I try to implore my students to really, really, really love what they're writing and be interested in it. Um, let it be something, the story, the character, something that they are just you know, passionate about and can't wait to get back to. Because you need that enthusiasm as a writer so that you will care about it and be careful with it. Um, and also that translates onto the page because if you're not enthusiastic and interested about what you're writing, if it's not something that sort of keeps you up at night and um, and uh, you're always sort of thinking about it and mulling about it in the back of your head, if that's not the level of attraction that you have to the story, then you probably shouldn't write it because if you don't care what you're writing about, the reader surely isn't. Nick White, I want to thank you very much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, we look forward to your, your next book of short stories. Yep. And do you have a publication date on that? We do not have a publication date. I'm not exactly sure when that's going to... It's going to come out after, maybe during the summer, I would guess. But I'm not... Next summer, but I'm not sure yet. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Doug. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.